Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Vynamic, Trending Health explores industry topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Mindy McGrath. The healthcare industry has been contending with the concern of clinician shortage for some time. The pandemic further illuminated the vast nature of the workforce crisis that presents significant headwinds to providers, patients, and the broader industry. Reports from public and private agencies detail these shortages throughout the care delivery setting, from home health aides and nursing assistants to registered nurses and physicians, we are staring down an issue that is sure to be felt by every person who interacts with the healthcare system. Today, we're joined by Vynamics' Brian Hummel and Marissa DeLine to examine the implications of the workforce crisis and have some collective thinking on the road ahead regarding this epic challenge confronting the industry. Before we dive a bit deeper into it, I thought it might be useful, Marissa, to ground ourselves in just how serious the workforce shortage actually is within the provider sector. And I'm hoping you could give us some highlights on what it is that's actually playing itself out right now. Yeah, my pleasure, Mindy. I mean, you really hit it on the head at the outset that the biggest issue that we're facing is that there is going to be a shortage at every different type of clinician, right? We're not even talking about one type of clinician. Almost every single subset of clinician type either currently has a shortage or is going to have a shortage moving forward. So within the physician space, within the RN space, medical assistants, home health aides, nursing assistants, pharmacists, all of them are going to be short to meet the the needs of the market moving forward. And we all know that prior to the pandemic, the shortage was really being driven by growing demand, the aging of the workforce, the silver tsunami. We were all well aware of that dynamic. At the same time that that was happening, our supply of clinicians was flat in some areas and diminishing in others. For instance, due to retirement of clinicians themselves as they are reaching retirement age, or just a flat level of interest in new people entering into each of these clinical spaces. And what we all know now when we look across the last two and a half years is that the pandemic has really exacerbated these issues. So we've, we've gone from bad to worse, honestly, in this space, which I'm sure many of us are well aware of. And the top of mind reasons for me that we've really made this transition from bad to worse is first, burnout. When we think back to the beginning of the pandemic, the demands of clinicians was incredibly high. We were dealing with a new type of illness. There was a lack of PPE, a lack of clarity on clinical guidelines. And so just that insecurity in day-to-day practice was not something that most, if not all of our clinicians were really used to dealing with on a day-to-day basis. And of course, unfortunately, there was also the high death rate. So just clinicians of various types seeing patient after patient pass away in the hospital. And over time, even as the acuity of that care diminished and we saw greater clarity on how to manage COVID cases, there was an increasing cognitive dissonance and kind of moral injury being driven by the intensity of care that these clinicians were dealing with on a day-to-day basis in their care settings compared to life as usual continuing outside of those care settings. And even honestly, that COVID or vaccine denialism being an issue that these clinicians were facing. And even as our COVID cases have declined over time, increased and declined depending on the waves that we've been in, 
really the other side of this coin is that there's been an onslaught of delayed care and sicker patients for non-COVID issues because of how many care issues were put on hold as a result of the emergence of the pandemic. So all those factors really contributing to burnout. And then we know outside of the healthcare workforce itself, we're also dealing with a really tight economy and the great resignation. So healthcare as an industry was really insulated from previous recessions. We've had three recessions since 1990, and there was really no interruptions within the healthcare workforce within any of those prior recessions. But that is not true at all during the pandemic. We saw a major decline in the number of jobs, and then there's been a really rapid rebound. So that high demand for clinicians has meant that there's been a lot of job opportunities for every single clinician and caregiver out there. And as a result, there's been a lot of job hopping. So the great resignation that's happening outside of healthcare is happening inside of it too. Marissa, you mentioned physicians and clinicians retiring. What's top of mind for me though, is as we start to see that job hopping occur, where are workers going? Are they going outside of healthcare or are they going in and around healthcare? I'm just curious about what we're seeing. I think the answer to that question is yes. I think they're going in many different directions. And if you reference several articles that we're seeing, whether it's from the Atlantic or CNBC, just to double down on what Marissa mentioned, this idea of excessive workload, self-perceived failed leadership, the, the emotional trauma that really added on and exacerbated an already tenuous situation between clinicians and the workload that they had administratively. It's no wonder that we're having this huge shortage. And if we take it even one step further before I talk about where these folks are going, one of the things that we have talked offline about is this idea that when it's not just frontline clinicians and the shortage of frontline clinicians, it's it's everywhere in healthcare. So shortages of folks in, in locations like environmental services or AIDS, which are forcing folks like nurses, RNs, or even physicians or physician assistants to do work that they weren't used to doing along with clinical care just adds to this urgent situation. And where are they going? There's a lot of competition in the world. You know, we've talked in the last several podcasts about this influx of healthcare technology startups and very and pretty successful healthcare technology firms that really require the know-how, the clinical knowledge, the clinical pathway information. So a lot of nurses and, and physicians are really going to the tech world. And just like much of society, they're able to have a flexible home life balance. They're able to work at home. There's cloud-based medical office software that's moving forward across the paradigm of the continuum of care. And they need thousands of physicians to, to work on that, on those modeling. So if you can just look at a practical sense of folks that are forced to work in a hospital setting that's high stress, understaffed, emotionally draining work, where they can utilize their, their education, their clinical background in the comfort of their own home, you can understand where these folks are going. And it's not just healthcare organizations, you know, non-healthcare organizations are also really understanding the knowledge base that a lot of clinicians have, whether that's nurses or physicians, and folks are going in droves. And there's a, there's a max exodus to these different subsets of healthcare and outside of healthcare organizations. 
the additional dynamic that we're really seeing is that there's a lot of lower wage workers who are critical within the healthcare system. You mentioned environmental services workers. We also have aides of various kinds working in all different types of roles in a variety of different care settings. And what we've seen since the beginning of the pandemic is that demand in non-healthcare jobs has increased so much that pay has been increasing in these non-healthcare jobs, benefits have been increasing, organizations are introducing more schedule flexibility. And so for these lower wage workers, even those who are incredibly passionate about working in healthcare driven by mission, the lure of some of those non-healthcare jobs has been pretty strong. So we have seen some of those lower wage workers also being tempted outside the industry. And to your earlier point, that's really contributed to this cascade effect of difficulty operating at the top of license because everyone is being dragged down a little bit due to the churn that's happening in the low wage workforce. Ryan, you were talking more about physicians and, and nurses, and it's not just top of your license, but think about why people get into healthcare to begin with. And many of them have that pursuit of purpose, right? Pursuit of passion. This is all they wanted to do. They went to school for years and years and years, right? To hone their professional skills to be able to deliver care. And, you know, I think there's an element of this that also comes into play when we're talking about where everyone is going and who is leaving the workforce after spending so much of their lives kind of working towards this end goal. When we look at the numbers, we can get some idea of where some of these caregivers and clinicians are going. Some sites of care are benefiting from turnover within other sites of care within the provider space. And in particular, when you look at Bureau of Labor Statistics data, we can see that outpatient care centers, offices of physicians, they have actually not only recovered to their pre-pandemic volumes of where they were on number of employees, but they're actually higher than they were previously. And where those clinicians and caregivers are coming from, we can point specifically to other sites of care, especially skilled nursing facilities and other types of community care facilities for the elderly. We are seeing shifts even within the provider space of where folks are preferring to work. And that's definitely part of our dynamic here. But I think the sad reality is, is when we look beyond the numbers on a personal level, we do have caregivers and clinicians leaving the profession altogether. Now it's unclear, maybe some of these departures are temporary. Maybe some of these folks will be coming back. But when you look, even just in, in the popular press and in articles that you can read, you see some searing personal testimonies from some of these clinicians talking about I devoted my life to training to become a doctor or a nurse. I spent years honing my skill set. This was my top driving passion that I never thought that I would leave this type of work. But the pandemic has put me over the edge. I just can't do it anymore. I can't show up on a daily basis. I can't do what I used to do for patients. And so I'm taking a step back. When you see those types of personal testimonies, you really do see the fallout that we're talking about. It's easy to talk about burnout on mass and some of the numbers that we're seeing, but really the personal impact is just hard to get your head around the degree of impact we really are seeing on individual clinicians and caregivers. Where my head goes is thinking obviously about the implications for patients, right? And what this does around wait times or access and mm -hmm. just quality of care delivery and the continuity of care. I also think there's another piece of this, which are implications to other sectors 
within the healthcare industry that have always oriented around the clinician model? The home care nursing shortage, one could argue, has cross-sector implications that are somewhat disastrous. If you think about this great gap that exists where in a normal setting, babies, children, for example, and pediatric patients would be released to the home from the hospital, and they're not able to do so because there's such a home care nursing shortage. And the two options are both bad, one of which is parents being asked to perform clinical interventions on their own children, which you know puts risk into the situation, or the other option where children and babies are getting stuck, for lack of a better word, in a NICU for weeks or month at a time, which adds tremendous cost to the system. That really affects the health plan sector. So, you know, there's all of these tentacles with the shortage that I think a lot of folks don't think about, but you think about on top of that, the cost of a child that's stuck in the NICU for four to six months because there's no nurse to care for them at home, adding tremendous cost to the system, or even the expansion of the access of health insurance coverage that has occurred since the ACA means that more people can actually afford to get care. But if we don't have the clinicians to care for those people, this is added to the influx and demand of people looking for appointments. And the primary concern for these healthcare plans is around network adequacy and ensuring that members have the right access. And when you add this influx of patients that think they require care to a supply of healthcare workers that does not cover the demand, you have incredible cost implications. And that, those incredible cost implications then get pushed back to a hospital or health system or provider group that needs to pay more for talent or charge more for services, which then creates tension between the healthcare provider and the health plan. There is this real snowball effect that we're seeing in real time that's not good for health plans. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think there is this cascading domino effect. And as both you and Marissa have been talking about this, the other um, part of the equation that I've been thinking about or that's top of mind for me too is around life sciences and the therapies that life sciences companies bring to the market and some of the implications that they will feel as a result of this workforce crisis. So primarily I think about their sales force, right? And how the commercial model for life sciences organizations are really oriented towards a model that has a sales team, right, having face-to-face -face interactions in order to educate clinicians. So if there are less clinicians available and they are overworked, there likely will be less opportunity, right, to have those interactions. And so I think for life sciences, where this is one of the biggest and greatest investments that they make, it's having to really think about what the implications of a workforce shortage will be on their sales force and their ability to actually stay connected to educate providers, right, on cutting edge therapies that are coming to the market that could help those providers in, in treating patients. I also think about the, the opportunity, right, from their operating model and how they might be thinking about going to market differently and thinking about where the patient comes into play in all of this and whether there's opportunity to actually pivot 
and invest more in direct-to-patient education platforms, knowing that this workforce crisis is not going away anytime soon. I mean, we know it's going to be with us for a while. We knew we were going to be facing it uh, before the pandemic started, and it's just been exacerbated as a result of, of the pandemic. So when it comes to life sciences, there is some, some real strategic thinking that needs to go on and some consideration that needs to go on about how they continue to go to market in the face of this very real challenge and how they typically relate and interact with the provider sector. I also think there's opportunity for life sciences companies right, to use their resources in a different way. So we've talked a little bit about life sciences organizations typically have funding that they, you know, charitable funding that they direct into the healthcare system. And Marissa, you talked a little bit about the supply and demand challenge that we're facing. And, you know, I wonder whether life sciences companies have an opportunity to think more about where they might direct some of that funding to increase nurse education programs or even sponsor more residency programs all within the context of the legal and regulatory guidelines that exist today. So, you know, I get what you're saying, Ryan, about that the health plan piece of it and what those cost implications are. But I think there's another piece of this that we need to be absolutely considering in this, and that is the therapy piece of this and how life sciences companies can, can play a role, right, in thinking, acting, and doing differently to help either address and or support what is going on in a very acute fashion in the provider setting. This is not just a U.S. problem. If you look at Canada or the U.K., there is a, a workforce shortage across the globe. And specifically in the U.K., the cancer waiting times is something they've never seen before, right? And there's there's folks waiting for treatments for cancer that is going into the months. And as you know, a not, any non-clinician would know, when you're waiting for treatment for cancer, time is of the essence. And these folks are just not able to get the access to the therapies they needed because of the shortage. Yeah, I think you bring up that that point, Ryan. Like we talk about how this impacts patients, but I, I mean now it's like humanizing what the impact of this really is when you are dealing with life and death situations and access becomes such a huge issue. You know, it brings me back, I guess, Marissa, to a topic that we had talked about offline, which is this whole idea of ruthless prioritization on the true choke points of what is going on in the industry and, and the fact that we simply do not have enough supply to meet demand and that we can't solely rely on the industry to fix the industry when there are so many upstream contributors that are bigger than healthcare. So I would love to to just talk about that a little bit because I think that that ties into the conversation in terms of where do we go next with this issue and how do we start to address it collectively as a global issue because it isn't solely an American or U.S. issue. We are seeing this workforce shortage play itself out in many different countries. Mindy, I'm really glad you're asking that question because I think the size and scale of this problem is so huge. It's sometimes hard, hard not to feel a little bit discouraged and a little bit scared in terms of where should we be focusing our time? Where should we be focusing our energies when it comes to fixing this problem? Because we know due to the aging of the population, this problem is only gonna be growing. It's not going anywhere. So we have to do something. And when I start to think about what is the right thing to do, I think your term of ruthless prioritization is a really apt one. Because I think that's what we're gonna to have to do to ensure that we are making headway on this issue. 
And on my short list of things that would be top of mind for what should be prioritized, what should be on the table is a key issue that not just provider organizations, but all different types of healthcare organizations should be focused on. The first one is really about subsidizing clinical training and expanding the volume of clinical training slots available. Part of the reason I say that is because there's such huge competition right now, of course, for, for medical school and residency slots, and also we know the high costs associated with them. But then in the nursing space, one of those issues that has been lurking and is just getting bigger and bigger and scarier is the lack of nurse educators we have available to actually increase the number of nursing school slots available. So without more nurse educators, we can't have more nursing students and we're not gonna have more nurses. As a result of that, I really think that this issue of how can we as an industry tackle expanded and less expensive clinical training has to be a priority. It's about making our own clinicians and building our own talent, not just picking up the talent that already exists. Along these same lines, the other issue that would definitely be top of mind for me is about how can we ensure that young people are inspired and connected to future careers within healthcare? As early as high school, how can we find inroads to educating young people about opportunities to work in healthcare and what all of these types of caregiving and clinician roles look like? Ideally, when we have more young people interested, that's going to have a self-reinforcing positive effect to more people studying these topics and whether they go on to be clinicians and caregivers or researchers or scientists or just some, doing something parallel to the healthcare industry, that's a win for the industry overall. Those two issues would really be top of mind for me, and I'd be very curious to hear from the two of you if you have other issues that you would say in terms of ruthless prioritization, here's what I nominate as an issue that we need to tackle. Marissa, that's a good challenge. And I think one of the things that I would add to the top of the list is this idea of focusing on healthcare workers outside of nurses and physicians as well. We've already mentioned the shortage or the, the need to talk about environmental services and the changeovers of the bed and the acute care setting, or re-elevating perhaps the LPN model, which has kind of gone by the wayside over the last decade or 20 years. Uh, on top of that, in this podcast, we've talked about the illumination and elevation of the pharmacy role and figuring out a way to elevate pharmacy tech and farm techs and pharmacists to do some of the things that have been happening in, say, Europe for a long time in clinical care. But there's a lot of work that has to be done behind that and it's gonna take time and we have to be patient. I think just this idea of the core of physicians and nurses, but then this kind of mantle around the core, around folks that support them and elevating and illuminating them to the top of their license as well. The two things that come to my mind when it comes to thinking about what can we do right now, from a policy and regulatory standpoint, I think we need to get current in thinking more creatively, right, with state boards and how state boards can help to provide, still within in context of what's, what's appropriate, but think more creatively about how we can open up that faucet to start to bring more people into the fold and still operating at the top of their license. And the other piece to me that really stands out is that there's been a lot of conversation about this and we talk about, well, will new care models evolve as a result? Will clinical roles evolve as a result? We don't know what 
the future will bring on that. But I think what we do know, and, and Marissa, you made such a, a point about this, which is we need to start making changes now because we're not going to see those changes have an impact immediately. It's going to take some time. I think across all of our comments here, what really stands out to me is the things that we are putting on the priority list really focus on those upstream factors. And the reality is that we do need to build more caregivers and clinicians and draw more passionate caregivers and clinicians into the field. So that has to be important, especially to your point, Mindy, that it can take years and years, even if a specific new type of clinical role is approved by a state board tomorrow. It might take several years for clinicians to actually graduate into serving in that role. We have that time lag. And then because of that time lag, there's a lot of issues we have to tackle now in order to get ahead of these growing issues moving forward. The other thing that we cannot lose sight of is the other priority has to be, how are we caring for caregivers now, today? because we have so many caregivers and clinicians who are suffering in their day-to-day lives, in their day-to-day roles, and are facing so many challenges that we have to continue to ensure we are focused on supporting them and accomplishing their work as in a streamlined as way as possible, supporting them emotionally and the challenges that they are going through and caring for patients with really high needs, whether they be COVID patients or patients who had delayed care, to your point, Ryan, around delayed care for cancer, or whether it just be because the emotional needs of patients are always high and clinicians are always striving to meet those needs. That's the other counterbalancing factor I think we have to keep in mind is part of the ruthless prioritization needs to be focus on the steps we can take now to truly expand our pipeline clinicians in the future. And also it has to be caring for our caregivers that exist now to ensure that they are doing well. So well said. And Marissa, I just want to thank you for joining us today on Trending Health to talk about the workforce crisis in healthcare. It's so clear that you have a a passionate interest around this. And thank you for just spending some time helping illuminate how this is really showing up in the industry. It's really my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And also a huge thanks to all the caregivers and clinicians who are doing such important work day in and day out. And huge thanks also to all of the clinical leaders, chief nursing officers, chief medical officers, nurse managers, all of the folks who are day in, day out living this reality. That's who inspires me and who, you know, gets me out of bed and working on these issues every day. So pleasure to be here, allowing me to speak about some of these issues. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in this episode, subscribe to the Trending Health podcast and explore if Dynamic can help your company with ongoing healthcare industry change. Please visit trendinghealth.com.